Welcome to the Commentary Magazine podcast. Today is Thursday, November 5th, 2020. We're sponsored today by Donors Trust, the principled and tax-friendly way to simplify your charitable giving. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary. With me, as always, Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Senior Writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Uh, So... We are awaiting what appears to be the inevitable announcement today or tomorrow that Joe Biden has crossed the 270 barrier and will be the 46th president of the United States. And this uh, result uh, or, you know, what has happened since election night, while entirely predictable uh, and was, in fact, predicted and warned about, has created an entire world of conspiracy theorizing that the election is being rigged, stolen, taken, uh, something for which uh, Democrats and Republicans alike have been preparing the argument for at least 16 years. Uh, You will remember that in 2004, uh, John Kerry, uh, Democrats and John Kerry, led by the sainted Christopher Hitchens in part, not that he was a Democrat, but uh, uh, Christopher Hitchens, against whom no one could ever say a, a, an unkind word because he was a saint and a god and a glorious figure and Martin Amos's best friend. But he was also a horrible crank and, and, and prone to every kind of conspiracy theory. And he was giving a speech at Kenyon College in November 2004. And he determined that the Ohio election was being stolen because there were long lines at the polls and the, the poor students of... Uh, of it, you know, in, in and around Mount Vernon and Gambier, Ohio, were having trouble casting their ballots. And this then spread to the idea that Ohio was being stolen, that the Diebold voting machines were being, you know, were being uh, mucked around with by the Koch brothers. And that that is where this entire argument, aside from the butterfly ballot stuff in 2000, which, of course, I, everybody sort of accepted was inadvertent. We then went to actual the purposeful control and uh, of the election and then, uh, you know, we move on basically to 2016, where where Donald Trump said that he might not uh, he might not accept the results of the election because it's rigged and they're going to steal it from me. And then, after winning the election, said he would have won the popular vote, but they rigged it and stole it from me in California through some form of voter fraud. And now here we are in 2020, and this argument is now explicit. And the reason that I want to rant about this a little bit is the following: We know right? That 104 million uh, people voted by mail in 2020. Uh, Out of what appears, it's going to be a universe of around 160 million. This is the highest voter turnout in a century, uh, uh, you know, in percentage terms. And it is certainly, we're talking 20 million more people than than have ever voted in a single election, all told. And 104 million ballots and in many of the states in which this is happening, there is almost no experience with counting mail-in ballots or absentee, whatever, on this scale, including Pennsylvania, where there are three million, there were three million requested ballots for early mail-in absentee voting. And there is almost no tradition of that in Pennsylvania. So Pennsylvania, Georgia, Arizona, uh, Nevada, uh Michigan, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, right? These are the states that have sort of were slightly up for, and I, I guess we still have North Carolina. And each of them had way more mail-in voting than any than they've had before, except maybe Arizona. And 
millions upon millions upon millions upon millions of ballots and they have an electoral system that is you know does that has no history or experience with how to do this and so it's slow and awkward and weird thing you know and stuff happens and this is now being constructed and woven into a grand conspiracy theory according to which officials i think democratic supposedly Democrats and Democratic officials, not only in in in, in these states, but you know, in, in localities and, and municipalities and stuff, have all sort of conspired to come up with a me- me- methodology according to which they can screw around with the ballots and count them in a way and 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 destroy the integrity of the system and push Joe Biden over. And I'm going to just finish this rant by saying this: in the history of fraudulent voting, which is a long and noble ignoble history the way it works is that they do a count and they see how the election is going and when it they discovers that they when they find out the political bosses that they need a thousand votes here or 300 votes there or something like that they gin up the number just enough to get over the top so they stuff the ballot box or somebody finds votes in a box that weren't there before. But it's in the hundreds, sometimes even in the tens. We're in a system now where these states have millions of ballots and they don't actually know how many votes they need to push Joe Biden over the top if that is their purpose. Because A, they don't know how many they have. And and so you can't actually say they're stuffing the ballot box because they would need to know they would need 687,000 Biden ballots. And while you can stuff 50 into a ballot box, a conspiratorial system in which you literally create or manufacture or, 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 you know, do with hundreds of thousands of pieces of paper is something that could not be kept quiet, silent, or hidden, particularly if it's happening in like a day or two days or something like that. There are too many people who would have to be involved. There are too many people who would be gossiping. There's and and then multiply it by the number of states. This theory is not all. It's it's. I'm not saying that it's insane. I'm saying it's actually barbaric. It's a total misunderstanding. It's people living in the social media ecosystem who will believe any goddamn thing that they are told including this story about how there was a precinct that w- that had 100% of it vote for Biden, and it turned out that it was misreported. This is, was either in Philadelphia or in Detroit. I can't remember which. And it turned out that a, a column was transposed or something like that, and it, it wasn't true. And if you wait two seconds to see whether something that looks like it's impossible is impossible, and like check your facts and stuff like that, we wouldn't have two million people now believing that that tweet was real. And the person who even tweeted it, Matt McCoyak, has apologized for having tweeted it in the first place. Okay, that's the end of my rant. I, I, I told this. There's a there's a more respectable conspiracy theory I want to get to in a minute, but I told this before we went on, on the air, as it were, so I want to say it now, because I was kind of um, mocking, without naming people, um, those who are observing as ballots trickle in slowly from densely populated, poorly governed, dark blue urban centers and marveling at this phenomena as though it's unique or new or that you haven't actually witnessed it in your lifetime, all of which is not true. Um, you're basically I'm accusing everybody of bad faith. And I was, I was tweeting at the right. Um, 
But the left came down on my shoulders because they thought I was talking about them because their preferred conspiracy theory too is that it's Republicans in these urban centers somehow in places, Republicans in Wisconsin and Michigan have somehow and Pennsylvania have managed to make this very difficult on poor Democrats in these urban centers to report these numbers. It's their fault that this is all happening. Everybody likes this exculpatory fantasy that um, renders their political opponents irredeemably nefarious actors and 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 wildly competent. Well, so again, oh, right? so this, yeah. this is the, the yeah. competence point is worth worth spending a minute on because what every it, it suggests that first of all the expectation is now and this is a good expectation expectation to have and we were discussing this before we started recording that is Florida right a very efficient system that works pretty well and that gets the vote counted and gets a result. Very, this, the night of the, the election. That's thanks to Jeb Bush, who saw the debacle of 2000 and fixed a lot of how that system operated. We should have that expectation for every state. Um, but what's interesting to me is that a lot of this is just as, as John, you were alluding to, it's just sheer bureaucratic uh, incompetence and or overwhelmed. A bureaucracy overwhelmed is not going to function well. And that's the situation we're in with a lot of these uh, ballot counting. But I think it's a lot more interesting and, and for some people just sheer good fun to start concocting conspiracy theories around what's in fact a much more mundane problem, which is bureaucratic uh, uh, incompetence, because that can be fixed. You can fit. We know from Florida, you can fix the problem. It's a lot more exciting to sort of start ginning up these theories into the issue of the of the, the 100 percent precinct stuff being reported. The other way social media makes this um a difficult story to tell factually is that, you know, some places will report their voting tallies in batches based on the candidate. So you'll see like a batch of votes, you know, 2000 votes all for Biden. And people are like, oh, my God, that's obviously fraud because there was no context giving given to how these each precinct counts its votes and how it reports each vote. So there's just wild in there's there's some incompetence. There's a lot of lack of context in the reporting. And so people that's where the conspiracy theory on both sides, you know, develop lack of information, lack of, you know, sort of a lot of suspicion. But it's not it's not just that, though, because um it's not lack of information. It's um, also so much of the conspiracy theorizing on both sides has been top down. So it's uh, people working with bad information, right? It's not just the it's not just um, social media and sort of the public in the dark who's now concocting theories. This comes after, you know, um, God knows how long of, of Donald Trump saying that uh, the that they were going to that they were going to steal the election or or um, uh, commentators talking about how the Trump administration was conspiring to use the post office to to steal to rob uh, votes from uh, Democrats and so on. So this is a strange top down conspiracy theory that is like, you know, now sort of you know moving back upward. You don't even have to ask them to define the, the they. They never define the they. Um, oh, sure is, they do. Louis DeJoy, the postmaster general, is somehow reaching down into the innards of a system that he barely even knows as he had started at the post office last year and is not a postal worker. And there are, I don't know, 22,000 post offices in the United States or something. Okay, and this? he's controlling how the mail is sorted through the machines in the back of the Boise, Idaho, you know, Mission Neighborhoods post office. Okay, so when you define the they for the left, it sounds ridiculous. Who's the they for the right? 
It's urban politicians. That's a, it's the Philadelphia that's machine. They. they. Like many millions of they. How dare you? <laughs> it's, the scope of the they is pretty intense. But also, I mean, back to it's the AOC. Con- it's AOC and, uh, you know, and uh, Maynard Jackson d- d- of Atlanta from 40 years ago and whoever you can name. It's an intrigue so nefarious that they've managed only to target Donald Trump. While, however, leaving Republicans in some of the best positions they could possibly imagine, better positioned to thwart um, Joe Biden's initiatives in, on day one, better positioned to retake both chambers of Congress in 2022, better positioned to, to, to stop Democrats from uh, reapportioning the map in a way that would make them more right. competitive. I think, I, I think I need to explain what you mean, because here's the thing. In all of these places, in all of these states, it appears... Um, the Republican senatorial candidates are running ahead of Trump, right? So in Maine, for example, uh, Susan Collins won won the won the race. Uh, Biden won the state easily. Uh, in oh, it's not just Senate candidates. You can do this in aggregate. Right. Uh, Patrick no, Ruffini. Yeah. Patrick Ruffini has uh, calculated this, and a, a popular vote on the House margins for Republicans has run run across the board one point two points better than Donald Trump ran right nationally. So, so this Republicans across the border are running Trump. This conspiracy is so brilliant that people mm-hmm. are marking the ballot for Biden at the top, but they're voting for Republicans down ballot in order to cover their tracks. You see <laughs> well, that they're not. They're not no, really. no 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 but I mean that no. I'm that's saying the theory. that, not that actually the theory this. would have okay. So no but that, that's that's and and once you believe a conspiracy theory Everything proves the theory because you see the fact that Republicans is a proof that they that the, that the conspirators knew what they were doing. It's just Trump they want out, and so they knew that they they had to cover their tracks by by having the rest of the ballot be Republican or something like that. So we are. It, this is a very, very, very strange set of circumstances. Ruffini's number, by the way, is absurdly early because there are still twenty million ballots left to count or something like that. 15 to 20 million ballots that are provisional on all the preliminaries. So are the exits. The exits are preliminary. No, forget the exits. I don't believe a word of the exits. I'm not even going to deal with the exits. The exits are garbage. The exits are garbage like polling is garbage. Let's talk a little bit about polling being garbage again, since it's my favorite subject. Uh, Nate Silver at 538 got very angry on his podcast uh, because people were questioning 538's, you know, uh, chart that said that uh, that uh, Trump only had a 10% chance of winning. Now, he says fairly that, uh, you know, Biden's going to win, so I don't know why everybody's yelling at him. That's a perfectly fair point. I mean, in, in that case, like, in the end, Biden won. Uh, the election was closer than the, than the you know, than the national, aggr- the, his poll aggregators had it. But to be fair to him, this is where it gets interesting. To be fair to him, he is a poll aggregator. He is not a pollster. And he creates an incredibly complicated system of weighting this pollster versus that pollster and all of that. But he's a poll aggregator. And his what he produces is only as good as the polling that he feeds into his machine. And so saying he needs to find another line of work is not fair, in my view, because all he is doing is putting together information that is is coming from elsewhere. If that information is corrupted, it is that information that either needs to be uh, the way that information is gathered that needs to be 
you know, entirely revolutionized or the entire system needs to be dropped. And I know this is like almost unthinkable and I'm talking fantasy. There is a pushback to the bad polling thing. And he says it a little bit in his, which is like, look, in the end, Biden's going to win by four. So the polling average had him winning by nine. So that's a little bit outside of the of a conventional polling error, standard polling error, but it's not really, it's not like so far outside. And there are outliers. Like we never said that Biden was ahead by 17. And we never said this and we never said that. Okay. This oh. is a good way. This as a as a parable or as like an example. I think this Nate Silver versus you know defending the polling industry way is or thing is is a good way to get liberals to understand how bureaucratic capture works. Like he is he's basically supposed to be overseeing this industry and being critical of it, but to be critical of it would sacrifice your influence over the industry. Right. But here's the thing. The polling error, forget Trump, right? I mean, we have states in which the polling error is just in, it was insane. Ohio, right? Eight points off. Said it was a tie, eight and a half points off. Trump wins by eight and a half. Wisconsin, Biden was going to win by eight, right? He's won by 0.2, it appears. That's not a standard polling error. And then, of course, we have the Senate races, right? We have Lindsey Graham up by three in the final poll aggregate, winning by 13. Susan Collins never led in a poll. She won by six. In uh, John James was down five. He ended up losing by less than a point to, to Peters in Michigan. Over and over again, you go around the, the polling charts and you see this. Tom Tillis wins. Cal Cunningham was up by four. And it looks like Tillis has won by three. So, and, and, and they're all in one direction, which is not random polling error. Right. That's that, and that's a that's a really important point, right? Well, that that that's the question about that the pulse the the Nate Silvers of the world never do want to engage, which is what does it mean? What impact is there on voters before the election when they keep seeing these kinds of incorrect poll numbers? Right? Did it affect the turnout for Biden because everybody was like, "Wow, he's so far ahead; it's going to be a landslide." I mean, we don't know; it was an epic turnout in this case, but there are we we have a few small studies that show that. This, this hyped up poll, polling numbers can actually keep voters at home if they think their vote isn't needed or isn't right. so even those questions. I, I don't see them answering any of those questions at all with this election. Well, in the end, it's going to turn out that the my guess is that the, uh, you know, Trafalgar and Susquehanna pollsters, you know, the ones that everybody was making fun of who had, you know, Trump winning in Florida and all of that that are now going to be like lionized that they were basically their their secret sauce that they won't tell you what it is it was the Noah Rothman secret sauce except mm-hmm. more except except more aggressive that is they did polls the polls came out x and they just added 5 points to Trump's number and it turned out that in all sorts of places that was the right that was the right move um you know uh or maybe the larger the number the larger the the point total they would spot to Trump on the basis of the theory that people aren't telling pollsters the truth and on the basis of their theory. And, you know, we don't know how weights work, to be honest. Every pollster has some complicated system where it's basically making some kind of a guess about what the electorate is and what it's doing. So how Kahali at Trafalgar and all of this, I was as critical of him privately, you know, as, as anybody else was, because I presumed that the polling 
was looking at the electorate as it was, and it, it it really wasn't. I mean, and I'm sorry, but we are we are told if you call something a standard polling error that's off by five, and the the you know the result is that it's off by fifty. You can you can call anything anything. You can call it a standard polling error. It is not a standard polling error when you are using a poll aggregate because the whole point of poll aggregation is that the margin of error rule no longer works when you aggregate polls. The confidence interval, whatever you call it, only works in the universe of the people that you are polling in that universe. Don't ask me what I'm... I'm blathering social science crap because it's all social science crap. But in its own terms, you only have a 95% confidence interval in the universe that is polled in the report that you have done using whatever system you're using to randomize your information so that you're not, you know, calling people you only want to call. In that circumstance, there isn't a margin of error. It's supposed to eliminate the margin of error. So then they call a mistake a standard polling error. But if the standing polling error is off by 50% or 100%, I don't know what you would call something that's off, you know, eight and a half to four. What, What would you call that? Is that a 100%? Is it 5,000%? Who cares what it is? That is not right. And you are, every every uh, discussion of what was going on in the election was skewed by what's gone on here. As a result, the end conversation is still being influenced by polls that got the electorate's opinions wrong on things. Well, that's also going to work against Joe Biden. Joe Biden is now perceived to be a very weak president because he got, he'll have a mandate, you know, he'll he'll win the election anywhere from 270, just 270 electoral votes to in the low 300s, which is a reasonable victory. And it's around, it's, first of all, it's a victory, a victory is a victory. And it's around what Donald Trump had. Um, Hey, George George W. Bush got 271 and then 286. Like, it's not like George, George W. Bush you know, who was a who was a pretty effective president and did a lot and got a lot done. Biden, like Trump, will have a larger, well, ch- chances are will have a, will be in a better electoral college position than they were. Go ahead. Right. But he, he's weak insofar as he didn't, he doesn't, he's the first president since I think 88 to enter, uh, 89 rather, to enter the office without having both chambers of Congress uh, in his party's control. But right. he's perceived to be weaker than he probably is in part because of the perception that was shaped by polling. The perception was that it was going to be a landslide, a monumental wave in his uh-huh. favor, and it didn't materialize. And that's shaping the perception of him as an effective president with a mandate. And it's shaping the perception of the American people in the eyes of the liberal commentariat. Christine, you were, you, you've been noticing this, that uh, we are, this is American Armageddon, apparently, even though I think by the time this is over, Trump will have won an election with almost exactly the same vote at Trump. Biden will have won the election with almost exactly the same percentage that Obama had in in 2012. Right. He'll win win by four, probably. But it's who voted for Trump this time around that has got them their knickers in a twist, because uh, the message of the last four years that, that Trump is this white nationalist racist, horrible, you know, everything that the left hates about a white male is embodied in Donald Trump. And he 
he performed much better with minority groups in 2020 than he did in 2016. If we trust the exit polls, again, right. that's the caveat about the exit polls. We're not sure yet, but it does appear that he ha- did even, even if he'd done a little bit better, um, that's something that, that undermines that narrative. So what we see now is this concerted effort of Charles Blow's column in the New York Times is sort of the, the perfect example of this saying, well, it's all just terrible. Our half of our country, instead of thinking, wow, what a shocker. We, we certainly didn't understand how this was going to go. We're already seeing these people are irredeemable and we are the saviors of democracy. It's, it's interesting how quickly that happened. I assume there'd be a couple weeks of soul searching. Um, no, there wasn't even 24 hours of soul searching. There's just simply, this is, this is yet another example of how disturbingly racist and awful our country is. And that's going to harm them down the line. That's, that's not the message they should have taken away from the election. Um, there's a third party. <clears throat> that the polling has, whose perception uh, the polling has shaped, which is Donald Trump. Be- because the polling had set such low expectations for him this go round, um, the fact that he's exceeded them um, has made him seem like a champion um, in the eyes of many Republicans and conservatives. Well, I want to get into We might want to take a break from that, yeah, okay. but I want to tease this because that's another, it's the conspiracy theory, a slightly more respectable conspiracy theory that needs to be dismantled. And that is the idea that Donald Trump is a good candidate. Okay. We're going to get to that. But first, uh, let's talk about donors trust. Here's a scenario for you. Are you a bit like Paul? Paul's an investor who likes to get things done, both in business and in philanthropy, who wants to put his charitable giving to work in solving society's problems and fighting important fights now, not when he's dead. So he sought out the most efficient, uh, tax-efficient, and simple way to make sure his giving would be as effective as possible. He found Donors Trust. At Donors Trust, he opened a donor-advised fund. The fund acts like a charitable savings account that lets him give in a smart, tax-advantaged, and private way. Now he spends less time on administration and more time having an impact. But Donors Trust is more than an administrative tool for Paul. With its unique mission, he sees it as a critical cog in advancing freedom because Donors Trust works with a wide range of donors who share a commitment to the freedoms and principles that strengthen America. Donors Trust philanthropic advisors can help you sharpen your giving, discover new groups, and define your charitable legacy. Join the community of liberty-minded donors at Donors Trust. Okay, so before we descend into the um the bashing portion of the podcast um i i i'd like to ask you guys uh if i'm I'm putting you on the spot here if uh there is any particular thing that has that surprised you about this election other than uh you know uh the emotional shift that took place around two o'clock in the morning when the when it appeared that the Trump, when when the when the blue wall, it started looking like the blue wall in Wisconsin was was uh, or the red wall, the Trump wall was shattering. Is there anything, any result that uh, that that surprised you guys? All of the down ballot results surprised me. They all were wildly out of step with the polling. Right. So we're talking about seven. Appears a pickup of seven. Republican House seats? At least, probably at the end of the day, it'll be up maybe in the double digits. Right. Almost um, all women or minority candidates, I might add, who won yeah. these seats. 
Right. Well, you know, we don't count them as women. (laughs) They're self-hating women, so it doesn't count. (laughs) Yeah, they they don't really count. Some Um, of them are QAnon supporters, too, so they might end up being liabilities at the end of the day. Well, one of them. One of them so far. Yeah, one of them is just, yeah, they just deride her because she likes to have guns. Yeah. Um, uh, And also at the the legislative level, which was an absolute shock. And people don't pay attention as much to the legislative level, particularly Democrats and Democrats on the press. So you don't actually hear as much about this, even though it's it's something that, like the courts, Republicans are very focused on and have been very focused on for a decade to their to their substantial advantages. They, they right. develop a farm team in a way that Democrats don't. Right. Well, we should, we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll get to that. So uh, my, my number, even though we, we mentioned this before, but there is something very interesting going on in California. So California, you know, it's it, it certainly, it's the largest state in the country by far. Um, and of course it's become a kind of rock rib blue state the way it was once a rock rib Republican state. Uh, you know, all, all, all statewide offices held by Democrats, very liberal Democrats, cities, all of that. But there were these two ballot initiatives, one on, uh, on retracting Ward Connerly's affirmative action, anti-affirmative action initiative from 1996. And the other on, um, that was aimed at Lyft and Uber for the idea that you could not be an independent contractor and work for a company for more than 20 or 30 hours a week, a disastrous piece of, uh, you know, a a disastrous idea, not only for Uber and Lyft drivers, uh, you know, who obviously have the right to choose whether or not they are Uber and Lyft drivers, but for almost anybody in the state who works as a freelancer. And both of these initiatives, and apparently, I'm sorry, and then there was a third one, uh, extending rent control provisions in some fashion that I don't really understand. All three of these were rejected by the voters of California uh, in statewide referenda, indicating that leftist, what, what is, um, what is uh, Walter Russell Mead call it? The blue, the blue model? state model. The blue state model is beginning at least to get blowback inside this very blue state when it comes to policy prescriptions that are the desiderata of the sort of AOC wing of the Democratic Party. That That is surprising to me. It is the most heartening event of the entire election because that is 55 million people. Neither of those are particularly surprising to me, and I'll tell you why. Um, one, when I was, first of all, uh, I followed this kind of closely, Prop 16, which was what you're referring to as the anti-affirmative action thing, and um, I think it was Prop 22. Um, when I was out there a couple of weeks ago, you couldn't go anywhere without being encountering the very well-funded efforts to thwart uh, the the attempt to create, to force Uber and Lyft to classify their uh, the people who use right who drive for them as employees which would destroy their business model that was everywhere it was impossible to ignore it it seemed like a very it was a very well-funded and very uh well uh staffed initiative uh, opposition to that initiative so that doesn't surprise me the polling around prop 16 always showed it was going to fail never showed that it was particularly popular it was always underwater by about 10 15 points it was very unpopular and it failed as a result, as it should have, in part because it's absolutely insane. The initiative 
was to strip language from the Constitution, that is the state constitution, that is explicitly anti-discriminatory in favor of discrimination, just discrimination against the right people. That's always going to be a tough sell, even though they were very well, they were outspent. People who were supported Prop 16 outspent them like 10 to 1. It was it was a well-funded initiative. But the message is just insane. Okay, but you're, th- this is, the idea, y- you have now said that it's insane. This is a this is a conventional opinion in the entire ruling class of the United States. This what you've said is right and this is where I say stuff is going on sub rosa. There are time bombs ticking under the liberal consensus from the American people. We sit there and we worry that, you know, we are the everyone's moving left and, you know, all the surveys suggest everyone's moving left and politics is moving left and the academy is brainwashing everyone and all of that is true and at the same time these are people we're talking about young people and people in California who live under a regime who are increasingly live under a regime that is enforcing ideas and principles and policies on them that are unworkable and unlivable. Okay. But so I, but I think we're going to be seeing these battles play out in different regions of the country in different ways. And I'll give, here's another example, sort of a counter example, which is in Florida, which went solidly for Trump. They also approved by 60% a ballot initiative that raises the minimum wage steadily till it gets to $15 an hour. So that's actually right. something that you could, that's, that's a progressive left, um, uh, claim that they've been they're going to try to get that in every state and and i think that we'll see these battles i actually think it's heartening that 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 they're both things are going on this power system is supposed to work but those if you look at the way that voters are now uh talking about progressive the progressive agenda they really don't like the elite cultural identity politics stuff but a lot of them are quite a lot more sympathetic to the economic message right so that's where republicans are going right. to need to reshape how they approach those voters because republicans are pretty bad on on talking to those voters who are right. who are who don't like the elite stuff but le- are concerned about the economy i mean i think the problem is i i think everything is actually still moving left until the policies are enacted and then people suffer um and then they're rejected um, but I think you have to cycle through that uh, process before you see the heartening indication that people reject the bad things. Look, the the simple uh, fact of the matter is that the, the Uber and Lyft referendum is people, elite people saying, I am going to tell you how you make a private contract with somebody who's going to pay you for a service. They can't do this unless they do it the way I want to. And you're not going to be allowed to do it the way you do it unless you do it the way I want you to do it. That commonsensically is in, uh, insane is the wrong word. That commonsensically is something that, that, that no person who feels himself to be free, particularly in an, in a world and an economy, this was all happening uh, at a time when, uh, you know, unemployment had reached three and a half percent. So somebody who was driving for Lyft or Uber who who wanted a full-time job could get himself a full-time job that wasn't Lyft or Uber. You know, that's this year. I know. Then the pandemic hit and all sorts of stuff happened and unemployment went fluey, precisely a time at which you might want to like jump into an Uber and start driving an Uber if you could get anybody to get in your car with you 
because you've lost your job and this is the easiest way to start making a little money on the side using the one asset that you have, your car, right? So I think people can feel that and and deal with that. The affirmative action thing is 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 more interesting in I think the way that um Christine talks about which is that these are all proxies for the culture war. And this is the first sustained victory that we have had in the I would say our side has had in the culture war as an electoral matter that I that I can tell where you have an explicit either we're going to throw away something that calls for equality of opportunity rather than equality of result or we're or we're going to keep it yes or no up or down and the choice was made okay so let's um let us now talk about the meta message of this election uh where uh you know uh no one wants to talk about the um the electoral atmosphere and then i want to talk about the about sort of the 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 general what what the biden victory might mean assuming a biden victory which i think we can assume so no go ahead yeah so for many in the trump friendly right-leaning press respectable right-leaning press we're not talking about conspiracy theorists. We're talking about mainstream people, many of whom are my friends. Um, the notion here that the 2020 election results have produced a singular outcome, and that is vindication for Donald Trump and Trumpism, whatever that is. Um, and it would take a long time to define what that is. I think it's more of a critique of a governing philosophy than a governing philosophy in itself. And it most assuredly is uh, observable in a disposition more so than a program. Nevertheless, the theory is that Donald Trump was a spectacularly good campaigner because he delivered his party to a position of primacy here. Not really primacy, but at least outperforming the polls that was not expected. Look at how Donald Trump performed in places like Miami. He's changing the nature of the electorate. He's changing the Republican Party into a much more viable institution. And even if he loses, his legacy is therefore uh, set in stone. Um, I think this needs to be the case psychologically because it, it would retroactively justify the last three years, but it also doesn't seem to be particularly well-founded. Listeners, I want you to say it with me. As we do this podcast, as we record it right now, poll watchers, political analysts are pouring over razor thin margins in Arizona and Georgia. Say it aloud, Arizona and Georgia, two states which respectively have not voted for Republicans since 1992 and 1996, which are governed by Republicans. The governor is a Republican. The secretary of state is a Republican. You're talking about now the notion that Donald Trump is per, may pull these states out by the skin of his teeth and in Georgia by a recount, which is now inevitable. Um Meanwhile, and we don't even have to go into the details of how Donald Trump changed the map in 2016, and which seems to have reverted back to a familiar form in 2020. But you're looking at these results and saying that Donald Trump is uniquely um, competent, even though his party outperformed him. It suggests the opposite. It suggests that Donald Trump was a bad candidate relative to his party. Okay, now let's pull away from the party question and talk about the meta meaning of the election. 
I think um, what my my favorite podcast, aside from our podcast, is the National Review Editors podcast. I oh this is it's the only other one I listen to besides Jonas. I, I listen to I listen to I love the editors. I love them all. I love I love it when when Michael Brendan Doherty is on it. I love it when Jim Garrity is on it. I love Charlie Cook. I love Rich. It's a great political podcast. Uh, yesterday they were they 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 published one that was an effort to sort of reckon with the results of the election. And uh, a lot of the podcast sort of dwelled on, I think Noah was kind of referring to it, uh, what Trump has done and how, as people have been talking about, he generated apparently, though, again, we're using bad data at the moment, um, he generated, you know, surprising returns among uh, Hispanics and, 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 and African-Americans in Florida he, uh, you know, flipped, he flipped a, uh, you know, a Rio, a county on the Rio Grande that has never been Republican before. Tragically, if you then look up that county, Zapata County, there are 3,800 voters in it. So um, it's <laughs> that it flipped, you know, that 300, 300 people went in, in a different direction is, um, you know, or 500 people went into is, is very interesting, but it is 3,800 people. It's not, um, you know, it's not Harris County or something. But anyway, you know, he did this, he did that. He's an incredible campaigner. Look at the rallies in the last two weeks. He, you know, really solidified himself and and all of this. And I was sort of listening to this. And then it occurred to me, what no one has reckoned with, right or left, is the is the extraordinary repudiation of Donald Trump personally in this election. Let me lay this out for you. 160 million people, it appears, will have voted in this election. Following an election in 2018 in which 118 million people voted, Democrats won the 2018 election nationally in aggregate by 9 million votes. Biden is likely going to win this election in aggregate by 12 million votes. Biden ran a campaign of no ideas, no principles, no uh, no vision for the future. All of that was rote. We understand it to be rote. He was against fracking, then he was for fracking. He wants this form of the Green New Deal, but not that. He wants this. He doesn't want that. He maybe he'll court pack. Maybe he won't. Maybe he'll do this. We none of that was clear. One thing was clear. He was not Donald Trump. That's what he was. He was the guy you voted for because he was not Donald Trump, but he could appeal to white guys. Maybe some white guys who voted for Donald Trump would vote for him, particularly in the three states. That was why people voted for him. He was also not crazy. He wasn't a big leftist. He wasn't, you know, he was the he was the most right-leaning of the 22 people on that stage, probably, you know, except maybe for John Delaney and, you know, people you don't even remember who they were. Trump generated a force against him from the outset of his presidency that has now washed him out of office and repudiated him. Just because they're cities, just because a lot of them are liberals, just because of that, there has never been anything like this before, particularly for a president who had a decent record on you know, on non-ideological grounds, you could say a, a good economy before before COVID. He didn't cause COVID. 
you know, um, the, he didn't go to war. You know, he didn't get us mixed up in foreign entanglements. Uh, you know, he made this fantastic change in the Middle East, all of that. So he had a record to run on, which, of course, he didn't really run on, though he said he had the, he'd created the best economy ever, which itself is a self-invalidating way to run on an economy, because if he could have said, look, I inherited a mess and I got us on a really, really, really strong footing. And you, you know, if you, Americans had more uh, money in their pocket than they have now, instead he had to go with this preposterous hyperbole where people are like, eh, I don't know if it's really the best economy we've ever had, you know, like that stuff. He, Joe Biden, a nothing nobody moron, 275-year-old blatherskite idiot is going to have gotten 85 million votes. That is 20% more than Barack Obama got eight years ago, 12 years ago, in the largest electoral numerical, you know, uh, achievement in American political history. Joe, no one, it is going to be decades, in my view, before somebody matches the Biden sheer number of votes. And yes, Trump got more votes than he got last time. It looks like he'll have gotten about 10% more votes last time. Uh, though, you know, the country is, yeah, so 10% more votes last time. Trump created his defeat. Trump was defeated because of him. First, he lost the House by 40 seats, and now he has been blown out of the water. And he not only lost, the, it appears, I mean, we'll see about Pennsylvania. He will not only have lost the three states that won him the presidency, which is a pretty strong repudiation. And by the way, in Michigan, not even close, like it's two and a half points or something that he won. Wisconsin is razor thin, but Michigan is two and a half points. And I think as Noah says, uh, he probably, I mean, I'm still going to stand with the idea that he won Arizona and uh, that Biden won Arizona, and we don't know about George. So he not only did he lose the three states that he won that won him the presidency, he has he has lost at least one, if not two, others. This is a repudiation of Donald Trump. If you're listening to my voice and you like Trump, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry to tell you this. This is a reality check. I'm now not. Ta- I'm not going to even define why I think it happened, which I'll do later when things are calmed down. You cannot look at this and say that he created a wave of movement against him. Hillary Clinton got 63 million votes four years ago. Biden is going to get 20 million more votes than Hillary Clinton got when the counting is done. Like um, like uh, the conspiracy theories around the vote, you know, um, malfeasance, supposedly, its chief value proposition is as an excuse, an exculpatory excuse, some absolution. Uh, and we haven't gotten to, the, to this yet, but I think it's inevitable that the 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 grant the most effective, comprehensive excuse is going to be COVID. No president could have overcome the headwinds that were imposed upon this president by, by and large, an act of God or an act of a hostile foreign power, whatever you prefer. But um, but that's going to be the most comprehensive and effective uh, claim. It's going to be a comfort blanket for Republicans moving forward. But it does not explain why so many incumbents in this election, returned, were returned to office. Republican incumbents, the governing party's incumbents, were returned to office. If people are so sick and tired of this party and how it mishandled COVID, it sure isn't manifesting in the results down ballot. Well, and this is why it, it, it always frustrates me when, when people would say 
Trump is Hitler, he's an authoritarian, he's a fascist. He is a democratically elected president who who encouraged a cult of personality, which means, as John, I think you're absolutely right, his rejection at the polls, he should take personally. And the Republican Party should take it personally, which actually is a good sign for the future of the Republican Party. If you see it as a rejection of Trump and Trump's brand and Trump's brand of politics, um, if they embrace the excuse making and they embrace the idea that it, or they embrace the conspiracy theories, that's not good for the future of uh the Republican Party, in my opinion, because they should embrace the idea that the, he should they should take it personally. They should say this was Trump. Let's move on. Right now, if that doesn't happen, because I think what I've just described here is the most basic common sense understanding of the election. Nobody thinks that Biden has gotten this overwhelming number of people to vote for him. Nobody likes him. They don't mind him. They're fine. He's fine. He seems like a, a decent guy. Whatever they might think. He, he is an uninspiring figure and, 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 and a relatively inoffensive figure. All he was was not Trump. That's what he was, was not Trump. Look at the way he ran. Everyone's saying, oh, so my God, he was in the basement. He was in the basement. You know, he ran on the basis that the best thing that whatever happened to him was that he didn't have to campaign for the presidency he wouldn't have to talk. He would just stand there and let Trump be Trump while they were registered, while they were trying to convince people to collect those mail-in ballots. It was like, I'm just going to stand here. You watch Trump, and then we're going to tell you that all you have to do is fill out a ballot sitting at your desk and mail it in. You don't even have to go stand at a polling place. Just mail in the ballot. Do you want to listen to this guy for another four years? Just mail in the ballot. I'm just going to stand here and say nothing. I'm going to say nothing except you should wear a mask. I'm going to say you should wear a mask. <laughs> you know? where It's the presidency of wearing a mask. He has a huge mandate that people should wear a mask. Mazel tov. Yashir Koach, good luck to you when you actually have to do something as president. But he will have succeeded in the thing that he offered that was his offering from the beginning of his campaign when he was seven points ahead of Trump in polling till now, which is, I'm not Trump. Right, we've left, we're left. leaving the era of never Trump and moving into the era of not right. Trump. But it's still there's still Trump there. That's the part that concerns no, right. me. Well, that, that is the question, Abe. As a uh, you know, as, as somebody who is, I would say, I wouldn't say friendly. You are friendlier to the to the city to the, the that world than than the three of us are. Let's say, H- how do you think this process of the you know the Kubler Ross stages of uh, of grief? You know, uh, we're in the anger and denial stage, right? Uh, you know, they're stealing it and it's not happening, and he really won. And then we get to anger denial something bargaining and acceptance, right? I mean, so in the stage, how are, are we likely to have Republicans and conservatives come to an understanding of Trump that is different from the one they have right now? Um, we might stay in the anger stage, not meaning me. They might stay in the anger stage a very long time. I don't, I don't know how we get to the next stage exactly. Um, because, 
the fight that's being mounted now um, by Trump and his lawyers and by all the supporters online making accusations of um, fraud is not going to be won. That's not going to quell their anger, right? That, that, that's going to push it to the next level. So, um, no, I don't, I don't know that there's going to be this um, reconciling. Um, again, though, I, I don't think that the, the contention that Trump has proved to be a good candidate is entirely um, in place because it's psychologically soothing. I do think this was set up by the polling expectations. Um, there is this idea that you know, if, if, if polling had been accurate, and this is what happened. I think there there may be um, among Trump supporters some more realistic assessment here, right? It's just that he actually so outperformed the polling that he does seem to have accomplished something here in losing in the way he did. Maybe, but here's why I think it's a psychological device is that they attribute to Donald Trump and his party uh, universal agency. They are responsible for all the votes they got or all the votes they lost. Democrats have nothing to do with this. Democrats are passive actors here. It cannot be that Donald Trump passively benefited from a Democratic Party that moved way too left socially and alienated the members of its its constituencies that are traditionally voting, voting for Democrats on populist economic messages, not so much on social, uh, socially radical woke messages. That can't be the case. Donald Trump has to be the executor of these events. He has to be the master of his own fate, um, which to me seems like a contrivance. Okay, so let's 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 go at this in a slightly different way. Trump beat Hillary. She got she got uh, two or three million more votes than he did, two percent more than he did. He beat Hillary. He was the Hillary Slayer. People liked him for that. He then goes in, and a bunch of people love him for his aggression and all of this. Trump, uh, a not particularly popular Republican, uh, given the fact that he he won the nomination, uh, you know, with less than forty percent support. Real, I mean, he was a he was a plurality candidate within the party in twenty sixteen, and and once he became president, he started appointing judges and doing this and doing that. Republicans came to like him, and ninety percent of them, it appears, something like that, voted for him in in twenty twenty. That's where Noah. That's where this all comes up short, in some sense, for Trump with the Republicans. They like him; it's fine. Any Republican would have gotten that Republican vote against the Democratic Party as it is constituted in 2020, right? Trump got 45 percent of the vote. He got 63 million votes in 2016. You know, uh, Mike. If Trump had, you know, if, if Trump had sort of, you know, uh, dropped dead and Pence had been the candidate, he could have reliably banked on 63 million votes in 2020. If anybody else had been, pre- he, they can reliably bank on 63 million votes uh, at a minimum, which in this election would would take you to about 41, 42 percent. But nonetheless, Trump has that. That's generic Republican. Then there is the margin above that that is probably him and the people who love him for him and really love him. And maybe a lot of Republicans talk themselves into loving him because they hate because Democrats hated him so much or they felt for him because they saw in the way that he was gone after in things that they really couldn't stand 
like the impeachment, like the Russia narrative, like all of the culture war stuff, and like the way they treated Kavanaugh and all of that. Maybe he got, you know, the reflected anger was like, okay, well, you know, they hate Trump so much, screw them. I'm with Trump. I'm with Trump, do or die. But when Trump is gone, we'll see. Like, Trump is about Trump. Trump was never about the GOP or fealty to issues or something. Trump was the bulwark against them. Trump was Trump was the bulwark against the liberals controlling your lives. And he failed to ser- continue to serve as the bulwark. At some point, and you know, this didn't happen with Hillary, so may I, I don't think. I mean, maybe it did. Who knows? Who could really tell? But at some point, the party has to get angry at him. For having left them exposed, you know, for having this is happened to George H. W. Bush. Now, granted, he was seen as a liberal sellout and stuff like that by some people, but you know, George H. W. Bush, you know, one of the finest men ever to run for president, was hated in the party in the three or four years after after he lost in 1992 because the idea was he screwed up and he left us to Clinton's depredations. Yeah, there's, I mean, I kind of expected some of that, um, particularly, I, I mean, I felt that the notion here that we were just, there was no um, poll in the, no effective poll in the debate, P-O-L-E, between the permissive uh, apologizing uh, Quislings who who um, run American cities in the face of this violence, and Donald Trump, who's arguing against it feebly. Um, I felt that kind of rage. And yet, I don't know if that holds, in part because the Republican, the bulwark of the Republican Party is intact. Yeah. Donald Trump was, was ejected, right. but the Republican Party itself was not. Right. And so we, we are not necessarily as exposed as I thought we might be. Can I finish with one thing? Two two fascinating details that, Christine, I want you to reflect on. One is that uh, Ted Wheeler, the mayor of Portland, uh, was returned to office. Uh, and this is seen as the... He's the conservative candidate, John. Conservative candidate <laughs> against uh, someone named Yana Loney or something like that, who apparently, you know... She's an Antifa supporter. She's literally an Antifa person. So she's the Marjorie Taylor Greene of of, of Portland, and uh, she lost unlike Marjorie Taylor Greene. In New York last night, there was a protest, and cops, and there was fighting, and there was a protest, and damned if nobody knows what the protest was about. It started as a count-the-vote rally, like where where isn't the vote being counted the vote was being counted. So, the, and then people started spitting on cops and and cursing out cops. And if you read the news stories, nobody. We are now into the the protest has no theme part of the protest movement. Well, but there are two there are two theories about that. One is that you know people are are have reached their limit with this sort of behavior. And and in here in DC, we had a similar thing. We have these this all week these planned rallies. And last night's turnout was much lower than election night. And we'll see what happens uh, this evening and Friday. But uh, a lot of the comments have shifted in tone that I've seen. People's responses to these rallies are, "Wait, we we it looks like we're winning. What are you protesting?" And the Antifa people have don't feel they've won because they want to blow up the whole system. So what you see in New York and you saw a little bit of in D.C. on election night 
are Antifa and they will they're they're saying F Biden, F Trump. They don't like anyone. That will continue, I think, in pockets. But I think the public's tolerance for it is is almost entirely gone. We just they weren't a, people who were liberal and hate Trump weren't allowed to say that or express that. And now they can. The other theory is that everybody's keeping their powder dry to see if there's any sort of prolonged battle and if that's the case, then maybe they'll come out. I'm, I'm, I'm a partisan of the first theory, not the second. Yeah, that's nonsense. I mean, the notion that these people in the streets are waiting with bated breath for court challenges. Yeah, they couldn't, they couldn't pass point. the market. No, but, this, so. <laughs> but this is happening in Minneapolis, too. You noted that, like, that these people are out in the streets saying, you know, F, uh, F Biden just as much as they hate Trump. And guess what? This is the we've, they've already strained patience to the breaking point. There will be no tolerance for this sort of thing in a Biden era. Joe Biden will enter office without a mandate, with no coattails, with no legislative accomplishments that he can achieve. Getting his cabinet confirmed is going to be difficult because Republicans are going to have to confirm them. And the last thing he needs, or the Democratic Party needs, is social instability from people who are perceived to be their ideological allies. This thing's going to end Okay, quick. however, he's weak. Oh, he's real weak, but the Democratic Party isn't weak. Not in these municipalities. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see what they do. Abe, what do you think? I mean, I had a wonderful experience the other day. Like, I'm walking around in the neighborhood around our office, south of Times Square. You know how I, I mentioned how it's you know not a ghost town. Everyone's like, it's not a ghost town. I mean, it's not a ghost town. It's like. Um, it's like the world outside a rehab, a failed rehab center. I'm talking about day and night, people lying on the sidewalk, shooting up heroin in public. You know, I lived through the worst of, of the 70s. and it's San that Francisco. Yeah, it's like <laughs> San Francisco. Okay. Anyway, so you think that uh, Bill de Blasio, who is tolerating this, is going to like crack down on liberal protesters in 2021? Yeah, no, not a shot. No, of course. I mean, okay, I don't know. Yeah, but that's an election year in in New York City. Yeah, but he's not running anyway. Um, I mean, somebody's going to have to take this up, and that's going to be a pretty big issue. I hope so. But Abe, what do you think? Like, no, where do you come down on the? Uh, are Democrats going to suppress the protesters? Well, they're not, no, they're not going to suppress them, but the, the, I, I think the tone will change. But, but who knows how effective that's going to be? I mean, I mean, the tone of the of the of discussing them will change, not the tone of the protest. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, my hope is that they do it in the most uh, blatant and obvious way possible to expose their hypocrisy. But since I never get what I really want, it's probably not going to happen. But the best thing would be like, I mean, this is really not helpful. You know, that stuff. Like if MSNBC turns on turns on the protesters, that would be that would be fantastic. And then and then it'll be like, what? You can't accept it. They agree with you now. Anyway. Uh, we will be back uh, tomorrow. Uh, maybe we'll have a president tomorrow. Uh, maybe not. Um, we'll see. So uh, for Abe, Christina, Noah, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.